Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 95 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, October 16th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It is 47 degrees and raining here in Austin. It was like 91 this weekend and suddenly... It, it wasn't. Is really cold. The, the temperature dropped 44 degrees in 16 hours. You know what we need? What? A cat pajama party. <laughs> no, now you have to explain that to everybody. I, I think everybody must know about the, I didn't. the U.S. Embassy Australia accidentally uh, test driving what I guess was like a MailChimp-based uh, email Mailchimp. blast. And, and they had some just made-up text and imagery. Somebody was having fun with it to test it. Didn't mean to send it out. Picture of a cat. Wearing a Cookie Monster outfit with a plate of cookies in its lap. And then it said, invitation, cat pajama party. And you know what? I think we got to have one. What do you think? You have a, you have a mouthful of breakfast taco, right? When I, I asked you that. I think I took a bad time to eat my taco. Um, so, where, Bobby, what, what day is it? Uh, what day is it? Yeah. Uh, this is a trick question? This. Yeah, yeah. I already said it. What time is it? What? <laughs> Summertime. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, high school musical there. Um, so, it's about 9.40 a.m. on, you know... Tuesday. Yeah, it's not been a super busy week, but we've got one well, of our except, areas. I mean, you you jinxed it last week. You said, you know, those military commissions, they've been quiet. Yeah, we had nothing last week. And so on cue, the Court of Military Commission Review says, hold my beer. And so we have a little disagreement, friends. Um, Steve thinks we can <laughs> talk the entire episode about the Al Nashiri decision. Absolutely. And, and decisions, I'm, plural. Decisions. And I'm super skeptical, but we're going to find out. Well, but we're, so so why don't we start with the other news, right? Just and like then, a few a few kind of lightning round items, and then and then and then I'll see how much time I can waste on Al Nashiri. And then we have some grade A frivolity. It's kind of a a multi subpart frivolity topic, and it's, and it's very sort of the, the 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 path by which we got to this frivolity. So so sometimes you know Karen will say something very strange, and I'll say what what was the thought process that got you to what right. you just and there's said? There's always an actual answer to that. Oh yeah, yeah. So although you don't always want to know what the answer was, no, no. Um, so in this context. Um, we were thinking about some kind of, so we started by saying that our frivolity movies. would be non-baseball sports. I feel like we've done the baseball movie one. Yeah. So non-baseball sports movies, but then we thought that wasn't that interesting. Right. And, and then we got in, uh, we were trying to make it interesting by saying, well, how do you, how do you create a debate over what counts? And, and then you brought up golf. Golf, not a sport. And, but then you said something about Tin Cup, mm-hmm. which then led to Kevin Costner. Mm-hmm. And I think that must have cued in your mind other things. Jack Ryan. Somehow that, and, and I didn't see the connection there, which led to a discussion about Tom Clancy books, movies, and actors who've played Jack Ryan. Like the five actors, right? It's now five actors, which I could, which I could not name, but um, which we'll come to later. Ah, so so if you're listening to this at home, can you name the all five actors who have played Jack Ryan on television or in movies? Do not go to your phones. Nope. All um, right. So that'll be our, our frivolity. Will be a, a sort of grade A Tom Clancy frivolity, and I think it's actually. Temporally appropriate, Bobby, because we're right, we're right in the midst of um, faculty recruiting season for law schools. You're right about that. I will, in a most unexpected way, connect faculty hiring to the Tom Clancy for volley and, and, and topic. specifically your hiring. Yeah, and, and my connection to this. Um, all right, so before we get – let's get to the substance. Before we dive into the military commissions where and we And boy, are we diving. We are definitely diving deep. Uh, we're we starting, need a sound effect Yemen? for that. Oh. You, can you, like, while I'm talking, find a sound effect for – no, there should be like some kind of oh god, some kind of some kind of sound. 
it is appropriate that we're going to talk about a deep dive before we talk about Tom Clancy. Oh man, we are off the rails today. This is kind of a rainy, cold day, and and we've definitely got more frivolity than substance. And we're recording in, on this our between brains. two committee meetings, so we're both a little punchy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, all right. So uh, one thing to start with as a warm up. Very quick note: the James Wolf case. This is a case we talked about on the show. Uh, I don't know how long it's been. I guess it's been a couple of months. Uh, it, this to me, it's a very Sad story. This is the uh, the uh, staff member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence who was arrested uh, in connection with a leak investigation that implicated uh, then New York Times reporter Ali Watkins. And um, the, the public sort of gawked as it came out that they were uh, having a relationship. And there was there was much, uh, much commentary back then. <laughs> much clicking. Much clicking and, and clicking of, yeah, a lot of judgment. Yes. And uh, and, and a lot of concern about how this sort of brought together the, the leak culture of Washington um, and, and various other themes. Um, in any event, Wolf has now pled guilty to one charge of making a false statement, so the other charges will be dropped in connection with the leak. He'll be sentenced in uh, December, and uh, that will bring it into that particular episode. Perhaps more fruitful for us to talk about a second thing. There's a fascinating BuzzFeed story today. Uh, Alleging that or reporting that uh, a American-based private military contractor company uh, that employed a number of former U.S. military special operators uh, had been hired by the UAE to go into Yemen and carry out hits. And at least on the record in the story, the proprietor of this company, a, a guy based out of Pennsylvania, who, who is saying, yes, we did this. We killed people. He, he's quoted in the article saying, uh, you may say this is illegal. Maybe it is. Put me in jail. But it's the right thing to do. Quote, there was a targeted assassination program in Yemen. I was running it. We did it. End quote. Where's this guy's lawyer? Steve. Steve, help this man. Well, I mean, I don't know really how to help him. I think he has already made some some bad life choices. But let's let's walk through some of the legal questions. So, I think the analysis Bobby has to start with 18 USC section 956. Ah, the conspiracy to commit murder outside the United States. If only there was someone on this podcast who had written a law review article uh. about 18 U.S.C. Section 956. Do you know someone? Well, I, I'm looking on your shelves hoping I would spot a framed copy of Beyond <laughs> Conspiracy, an article I wrote many years ago, mainly about... It would be kind of... If I had framed copies of your law review articles in my office, I think that this would place be would look, You know, I got to say you have a lot of white space on your walls, <laughs> and I think I'm just going to get you one of those right. and put it up there. I'm not sure... I mean, I, listen, I like Beyond Conspiracy. I'm not sure I would rank that at the top of the Chesney Pantheon. I, I agree. I, I'm not in the Pantheon. I like that. So um, I wrote Beyond Conspiracy many years ago as part of a larger project of writing about the various uh, criminal laws that can be brought to bear in terrorism-related scenarios, especially those where you might have trouble linking someone directly to a particular violent act, like the material support statutes, but then as a, as a further inquiry, examining the ones that are in the nature of conspiracy charges and showing just how broadly you could uh, interpret conspiracy to be. This led me to look into Section 956, which gets charged a lot post 9-11 in terrorism-related cases, where you actually can link someone to a conspiracy to kill. Uh, it actually and, and goes back, back to what? To the, to the, 
so World War One, the Troubles in Ireland. Yeah. So what you had was a lot of people, uh, a lot of people in the United States who were sympathetic to Irish independence, who were Boston, uh, perhaps, who were perhaps not just raising money, but in some cases engaging in conspiracies to kill British soldiers or British officials uh, back in the United Kingdom. And so Congress passed a law to make it a crime for a person who's a U.S. national uh, to engage in a conspiracy to kill where the murder is to take place outside the United States. Um, but where part of the conspiracy takes place on U.S. Where soil. You've got the, you've got the, that's the whole scenario they had in mind. Um, and and uh, you had a lot of pre-9-11 prosecutions under this statute that were kind of random this murder plot, that murder plot. I remember one case where a person wanted to knock off his spouse in Haiti while they were on vacation, 956. Uh, more recently, it gets charged in terrorism-related cases. It looks like on its face it could apply here unless, well, Steve, what would you argue as a defense if you were defending these guys? Where would, what would they want to be the case <laughs> to avoid the claim that their conceded plot to kill people right. overseas violates 956. So oftentimes what we see is something, some form of a public authority defense that basically the U.S. individuals who are engaged in this plot are doing so not as private citizens, but as basically arms of the government. This is why, for example, we wouldn't prosecute our own soldiers, right, who may be carrying out lawful orders when they use lethal force overseas. So we, we saw this, for example, in the Anwar al-Awlaki uh, debate. See Supra, did. our deep dive. See our deep dive. Wah, wah. There you go. Um, the idea would be that if, if the government is writ large using force properly and lawfully in that case, and you can debate about whether they are, but if the government is allowed to do it in that case, then the person who's acting as the government's agent uh, may be able to claim a cloak of authority. So here's a novel question about Section 956, right? Can public authority derive from a foreign government in the context of a charge under 956? So that if I were representing that uh, soldier in the foreign army or the person who has been temporarily commissioned into that foreign army, <laughs> I would say that I have combatant immunity, yep. that it was a, if it was an armed conflict and I was properly uh, in the service of the state, I've got combatant immunity. The article says... Although, wait, can I hold yeah. on But, I mean, this is this is the whole fight in Hamadalin, right? Which is about to what extent someone can claim combatant immunity if they're in a regular member of an irregular armed force. So there are factions... So you're, you, you know, there would be factual questions. Right. You, you certainly have to make the case that you're, you're a member of the regular armed forces right. or otherwise cloaked with proper authority. And we can Hence, go to— but, that, but that's probably why someone insisted that they give that they be given ranks in the Yemeni army. Right. So the most incredible part the, of the no, article— sorry, the UAE army. The UAE army. The most incredible part of the article is where it expressly says that someone at the company insisted that the UAE military give these people, and it just says gives them rank. Now, it doesn't say, like, what the rank was, where they commissioned temporarily as officers— were they in there as 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 enlisted people? I would like to be Grand Marshal, please. <laughs> You're a seven star. <laughs> oh, <that's great. laughs> so, um, wait, do we, do we have to have that whole fight about whether there really is such a thing as a six star rank? Um, so you know, this, is a whole, this is a whole thing, right? No, no. Go into. De- I mean, I know generally that five stars is the most you see, no, but, no, but then there's, there's the idea of Grand whether, Marshal. Like, no, but there's no, but there's also this idea about whether. So there were various statutes that made like I think George Washington and John Pershing by law, had to be, like, superior to everybody else. So once you create a five-star rank, do those statutes mean that... Automatic bump up to six? Right. Interesting. Uh, wait, so how many does that give us? Uh, zero. Zero point... <laughs> zero. Zero point zero. zero. So, but listen, uh, the, the rank thing is interesting because I suspect, as you're suggesting, that it's part of a thinly-veiled ploy 
to give them at least the cloak of public authority in case any erstwhile U.S. prosecutor would try to go after this them. This is just like, I mean, just like when Germany in World War II, which we explained in another deep dive, wah, wah. in the Kieran case had a bunch of folks they thought could either were dual American citizens, right. German citizens, or at least spoke good English and had lived in the United States. They got these guys and they they cloaked them with the authority of being in the German Marines before they deposited him on U.S. shores to carry out sabotage. These people are being cloaked or were cloaked in the authority of the UAE military and then injected into Yemen to go about, well, not sabotage, but in this case, uh, to commit uh, killings. So let's assume for the sake of argument, we certainly have an armed conflict going on in Yemen. UAE is part of it. Uh, the article's description of their target is not at all at all, obviously, an armed force or an individual engaged in or having a nexus with the armed conflict that happens to be going on in that state's territory. Um, maybe there could be some debate about this. We're not experts on it. We're not going to try to get into it. But it's worth flagging. Even if you stipulate that there's an armed conflict, these guys were added in some fashion to the uh, UAE military, um, it's not obvious that their actions then had a nexus to that armed conflict. If they did, what then? Like well, if, if we stipulate that the target was, in fact, somebody who's a, right. a member of an organized armed force and that in that conflict. And that, therefore, there'd be a valid public authority defense in 956. So, I mean, you could you could look at the War Crimes Act of 1996. But, you know, we actually, for once, did look at the War Crimes Act of 1996. Right. So, so this is relevant because the, the obvious concern here is that you could describe what's going on here as guys who were brought into the UAE military, but then they were sent out to kill civilians, civilians who are not directly participating in hostilities at that time. Uh, if that's the case, could they be prosecuted back in the United States? And actually, both of us originally thought like, well, you know, let's look at the War Crimes Act. Well, actually, it's a good occasion to remind us of the limits of the War Crimes Act. The War Crimes Act is very much a Geneva detainee treatment and interrogation oriented thing. Uh, its various provisions make it a war crime to commit grave breaches of, of Third Geneva, of Common Article 3, both all, all those scenarios requiring that you have some person who is in the power, in your power, and you're, and you're, you're killing them, you're torturing them, you're doing these things to them. But we're not talking here in this fact pattern about someone who's in their power. They're talking about going out in the field and killing somebody more directly. Uh, there is an incorporation of several provisions of, of the Hague Convention, um, which you know might be thought at first glance to get you into that principle of distinction category, but the particular provisions that are mentioned there aren't aren't really relevant for that question either. It doesn't apply to this fact pattern. And so my read of the War Crimes Act is that it doesn't actually extend to the situation, even if you stipulate that what's going on here is a straight up violation of the principle of distinction, the killing of civilians. I think that's right. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a war crime. No, that's right. All right. Okay. So it's it's clearly a war crime to kill civilians purposely when they're not DPHing, directly yeah. participating in hostilities, which we do use as a verb, DPHing. Every, everybody be DPHing. Everybody be DPHing. No, but not everybody be DPHing. That's the whole point. Um, that could be a good title. Not everybody be DPHing. Will you write that down? So I, will, I will write that down. I wanted, I wanted Cat Pajama Party, but um, uh, how about not yeah. everybody be DPHing at this Cat Pajama Party? That's a little bit That's a little bit much. A little bit much. Baby, baby Shark. Baby Shark DPHing. Baby shark. Do, 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 do. Oh baby god, shark. I, I did it! I did it! No, I promised I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Both our households have had a lot of baby shark music. Uh, moving on. Uh, so, Steve, if we assume we have armed conflict, we assume we have a war crime within that armed conflict, and we're trying to figure out where and how a U.S. prosecutor of some kind could uh, could enforce that. 
it ain't going to be the War Crimes Act. So what are the possibilities then? Uh, well, you could theoretically, if, if these guys are retired members of the armed forces as opposed to uh, discharged. Okay, and um, there's some suggestion that some of the participants were. Ah, then there's the possibility that you could, that you could try them by court-martial. Right. Of course, I guess you're but, right. But there's some, there's some schmuck out there who's trying to get the Supreme Court to say that that's, that that's unconstitutional. So if, if they had gone to the point of retirement, yes. then they could be recalled to active duty and then subjected to court-martial jurisdiction well, where, of course, the, they listen, could be charged with a war crime. If they're crime. part of the Navy or Marine Fleet Corps Reserve, they don't have to be recalled to active duty to be tried by court-martial. Uh, interesting. So we don't actually know the particulars. And it's possible they were discharged, not— That's not going to happen. Um, listen, the other thing is, I mean, the, the original authority from military commissions, right? The Kieran Chapter 47 Military Commission. So non-Military Commissions Act, uh, common law, if you will, authority. Yeah, the sort of the World War II era commissions. That authority, as we've talked about, is still on the books. It would authorize the trial of U.S. citizens does, for war crimes. Does the United States have to be party to the relevant armed conflict? No. But could we make the argument that we are anyway, since yes. we are so engaged in supporting Listen, this the Saudi story and UAE? Just such a ridi- I mean, I just, I don't even, I mean. Well, I before even, we get uh, to like the larger okay. ridiculousness yes. of it, one last idea let me put for you. The ICC? No, that was oh. not what I was going to say. <laughs> Pretty sure that we're not doing that. Um, what about what about going back to 956? If you, if the, if what they did mm. under UAE authority was a war crime, does that actually defeat the public authority defense, or is that a, is that a separate consideration? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I mean, I actually this is why I think this could be. A, I mean, not that I think there's any prosecutor out there who's going to bring this case, but I actually think they'd be in serious trouble under 956. It's it's okay. Uh, what about? I guess a state, you know, if, if a Pennsylvania authority brought us, how are they going to have jurisdiction, have jurisdiction over a murder committed against a non? Well, but if the conspiracy, overseas. if it was plotted, if the yeah. contract to do this was accepted and developed in Pennsylvania, for example, that's what Larry Krasner should be spending his time doing. This is the new Philadelphia DA. Um, oh. <laughs> so you know what? Uh, certainly get headlines. So I, I think that I, it's not obvious to me that the public defense uh, authority is contingent on how you then implemented, you know, the, the war crime no, 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 under that right. authority. No, they, Those might be two no, they may not have a valid public authority defense no matter what here. Yeah. I think the whole point of the rank was to at least create the veneer of that argument. Yeah. So so a note for congressional staff, uh, how about tweaking the War Crimes Act to add in, clearly encompass some first-tier war crimes like the intentional okay, killing of a we're, civilian? Okay, if we're making notes to congressional staff, I have a more You have a long one. list? I, I, well, yes, so I do. <laughs> um, but on this <laughs> subject in particular, I would start with, hey, Congress, how about some hearings well, I on think the it'd be use of private military contractors, both by U.S. and U.S. allies, to conduct kinetic operations abroad? I agree uh, certainly with that, that a hearing on the role of U.S.-based private military contractors or U.S. citizens who are playing a major role in actual kinetic operations for other governments, a very, very fitting role uh, what, for, for the – is that foreign relations? Is that – I think foreign relations is the uh, – Foreign relations and or armed services, I could see, I could see jurisdictional arguments for both. Yeah, stronger for foreign relations, I think, yeah. since by stipulation these are at best former military. Yeah, although the, but the contractors, I think, right, like our our defense contracts, I think, generally come under the purview yeah. of the armed services. Committees. Yeah, it'd be interesting. All right, so so that was see, I knew we were going to talk about more than just Nashiri today. Yeah, all right, fine. Oh wait, by the way, what about uh, their their citizenship status? Is there any kind of impact on them from so, having joined a foreign military? So one of the grounds, we've talked about the expatriation statute before. This is 8 U.S.C. Section 1481. One of the grounds for 
being expatriated is that you did indeed voluntarily join the armed forces of a foreign nation either that is at war with us or as an, a commissioned or non-commissioned officer. So um, wait, if you're not at war with us, but you are a commissioned a, officer, officer. Um, you're subject to forfeiting your citizenship. Now, um, the no Supreme matter your Court, intent? Well, no, so that's where I'm going. Oh, so okay. the Supreme Court has said, there's language in the statute and the Supreme Court has said the Constitution would require, even if it wasn't there, that says that you must have done so with the intent of relinquishing your citizenship. So I don't think these guys are necessarily, you know, going to be expatriated tomorrow. But it does, Bobby, I think, underscore the more general, can I say, complete and utter ridiculousness of this story? Well, I, it is completely ridiculous. And yet it may be. The, the story's pretty good on hitting this larger theme of how, yes, we've had private military contractors as an increasingly big thing for the past but in like uh, a but principally in a support right. capacity and the article reemphasizes this that uh that kinetic involvement with american private uh you know mercenaries at the tip of the spear that's a different deal hey especially when it's on our side and not just like someone else's can war. i ask a, a random old neutrality act question oh the 18 usc 960 oh we're, we're moving down the well, road go back one to 959 oh in the other this, part of the neutrality act 18 us code 959 this is all from the early republic but these are the, some of the oldest criminal laws there are Whoever within the United States enlists or enters himself or hires or retains another to enlist or enter himself to go beyond the jurisdiction of the United States with intent to be enlisted or into, into the service of a foreign prince, state, colony, district, or people as a soldier or as a Marine or a seaman on board a vessel of war, blah, 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 shall be fined in this title or imprisoned not more than three years. Now, U.S. persons do become in service of foreign powers with some frequency. But isn't it all a violation of Section 959 that huh. just doesn't get enforced uh, in in every circumstance? I mean, or, or, or is it there's a further clause in 959 that says all bets are off. It's okay if you're joining up with a foreign military and it's against somebody with whom the United States is at war. So that's, I mean, that's 959B. Right. So you could you could fight with the French against the Islamic State, right. and that's okay. You can fight with the you can fight with the Brits against the Germans, right? In right. World War One, before we had uh, World War Two, before we had. Turkey. Does that exception perhaps apply by extension? Who to is the American, UAE fighting? Um, well, they're fighting the the Houthis, right? And the American we are supporting the. Saudi and UAE, yeah, yeah, famously is, or infamously, we're, says, we're supporting so, so them. So let right? me read. Let me read the language of 18 USC 959B. Yeah, this section shall not apply to citizens or subjects of any country engaged in war with a country with which the United States is at war. Aha! Uh-huh. So you can't invoke the 959B exception. Right. There's your charge. All right. Who's the, the Larry Krasner? Is that you said? Yeah. yeah. All Go. right. There's your charge. 959. <laughs> Make some headlines. Um. Gosh, this is just. Oh. Okay. All right. What else? Is there nothing else? Should we just wrap the show? Yeah, nothing happened in the military commissions last week. All right. Let's head on oh, back gosh. to Guantanamo. To? I mouthed off about how the military commissions beat had gotten quiet. And on cue, there's some massive decision. Decisions. Decisions. Okay. How about you give us the roadmap? What were the issues? Yeah, so let's, I mean, let's, let's start by reminding everyone where we are. So, <laughs> Okay, hold on. Let me go get some coffee. Yeah, and some dip. Um, <laughs> some dip. <laughs> Well, it's, 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 this is the dip. The dip. The famous 10-layer dip. So I, I confess that when you said dip, I thought you meant like just a pinch between your cheek and gum dip. Oh, you meant like tobacco dip. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yuck. You meant a 10-layer dip. I meant a 10-layer dip. Yeah. I thought you'd been here in Texas too long and you'd gone with a, <laughs> a skull Ugh. analogy. Ugh. <laughs> oh, gosh. I can't get that image out of my head. Okay. Um, so, 
Thanks, Bobby. Yes. <laughs> Al Nashiri. So Al Nashiri, um, everyone, is right one of the three pending military commission cases at Guantanamo, um, principally charged for his role in the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole. Um, this is a capital case. The bombing of the Cole resulted in the deaths of, I think, 17 U.S. sailors. Okay. Um, and the Al Nashiri case has been, shall we say, beset um, by one massive fight that has morphed into basically Bobby like a dozen different legal problems. So we've got, uh, among other things, the uh, the revelation and allegation about uh, a microphone being found in a room where attorney-client meetings were taking place, and the government saying, "Hey, that was a dead microphone." But there's a legacy microphone. Legacy microphone. That's from some prior deal. We weren't listening to this. Right. The defense deciding we don't buy that. Well, but also the defense also. Wait a second. The defense not being in a position where they could investigate that claim and not being in a position where they could advise their client of the discovery of the legacy microphone. Which then sets off a chain of events that ultimately includes uh, the defense attorneys- uh, Resigning. Resigning from the case. And the judge asserting that Judge they- Judge Spath. Judge Spath asserting they can't do so without applying to him for permission to resign in a disagreement between the chief defense counsel, General Baker, who said, yes, that's under me. That's not a judge decision. That's, right. a, that's a law firm management decision yep. for me. Yep. And they disagree about this, which leads to Baker being held in contempt. All of that gets vacated on. So that so the Baker contempt citation first is partly suspended by Harvey Rishikoff before he was fired as the convening authority. And then it's thrown out altogether by Judge Lambert in Baker's habeas petition against Spath. Um, so that gets wiped off the books. And meanwhile, the case kind of is grinding to a halt because well, so he's going Spath, to defense attorney. So Spath tries to proceed without any of these lawyers, including a learned counsel. And right, learned counsel is a term of art for? For someone with prior experience in capital cases. Right, okay. Um, and the idea being that the rules for military commissions, the Military Commissions Act, and perhaps even the Constitution confers a right on a capital defendant to have the assistance of a learned counsel. The act says, as far as practicable. Well, so we'll, we'll get to that. Yes, we will. Okay. But um, it's, it's very important. It doesn't directly and clearly require it. Uh, that is true. The Constitution might. Um, All right, we're jumping again, though. So meanwhile... Um, Wait, so, so, that, so Spath tries to proceed for a little while with just this one Navy lieutenant, Lieutenant Piet, who who's not a third counsel. into this? Or Shanghai, I think, is the Navy term. Uh, fair. Yeah, it's true. I did go kind of land forces there. I know, right? Um, apparently, there's a thing all like, right. where they, they don't all you know swim in the same direction. Um <laughs> Anyway, Spath eventually says this is not working, throws up his hands, and abates the proceedings. Um, the government takes an interlocutory appeal, or at least tries to, to the Court of Military Commission Review, um, claiming that the abatement was, in effect, a final order, just like of you know, a conclusive order resolving the proceedings. Um, while all that's going on, there is a separate fight that goes to the D.C. Circuit over whether two of the civilian lawyers who resigned should be allowed to intervene as parties in the government's interlocutory appeal to the, DC, to the, to the CMCR. Um, the CMCR had originally said no because the government had opposed it. They go to the D.C. Circuit. They get this order from the D.C. Circuit that says, hey, government, we want to see everything. Right. And bring the whole case. Bring to the us, whole please. case to us, please. And the government says, "No, we're good. We withdraw our yeah, objection." Yeah, oh, 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 you want to see the whole case? Never mind. Nothing to see here. Move along. And the CMCR, like apparently not minding the implication that it just does what the government tells it to do, changed its mind and said, "Okay, fine. You can intervene." Um, so that all happened. Um, then, right while all this was going on, there was the separate um, 
attempt to seek Judge Spath's disqualification on the ground that he had been actively seeking a job from the Justice Department while ruling on behalf of the government against Nashiri in these cases. A job he does get. He's now an immigration judge. Right. Um, The CMCR, as we talked about, I think two weeks ago, rejects that argument on the ground that Nashiri didn't make it in the trial court, which, of course, is a preposterous holding because the trial court was an abatement. (laughs) So, So which issues were ruled upon by whom? So the CMCR, so not to out, not to be outdone by its own ridiculousness. So the CMCR late on Thursday night released a procedural order about which documents they were admitting into the record as part of the government's interlocutory appeal that made clear that they had also issued an opinion resolving said interlocutory appeal. So first they revealed they've done this, but they haven't yet revealed the opinion. And indeed, it's still not public as you and I sit here. Well, it's still not been officially publicly released as you and I sit here recording this podcast. But do we know what issues it touches and we, what we have the outcomes? Okay, so because how some, do we have the opinion? A certain a certain member of this, a certain co-host of this podcast may or may not have posted it publicly on Friday morning. Fascinating. Are you going to go into where a certain co-host got hold of this? It just it came across the transom. It came across. All right, so tell us all about it. Okay, so we have, um, first of all, a remarkably long opinion from the CMCR. Um, it even has, Bobby, a partial dissent. Oh, man. All right. It's it's time. It is on. So the panel is Chief Judge Burton, Judge Silliman, and Judge Pollard. Um, and basically, after summarizing the case, let me, I'll just read the holding. We conclude, one, the three uh, defense, uh, sorry, the three um, defense counsel established an attorney-client. I'm gonna, I'm gonna spell out the acronyms. I don't think I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, please. We've been, we've been asked repeatedly to please spell out our acronyms. The three defense counsel established an attorney-client relationship with Al Nashiri, and they entered appearances before the military commission on behalf of Al Nashiri. Two, good cause is required before the defense counsel may be excused from representing Al Nashiri. Three, the chief defense counsel, that's General Baker made the initial excusal decision without good cause because the defense counsel did not establish that the government intruded into al-Nashiri's attorney-client relationships. Four, the military judge properly overruled the the chief defense counsel's excusal decision. Five, the defense counsel are obligated to comply with the military judge's orders to continue to represent al-Nashiri. Six, counsel must obey the military judge's orders unless a higher court overrules the military judge. Seven, the chief defense counsel and acting chief defense counsel abused their discretion and violated the regulation for trial by military commissions when they failed to detail additional counsel to represent al-Nashiri after it became apparent that the defense counsel would not return to represent al-Nashiri and the military judge said he wanted to proceed with pretrial motions. Eight, there is no absolute right to learned counsel. And nine, our court declines to delay our decision pending litigation in the district courts. Um, there's actually a tenth holding which they didn't even mention, which is that they had jurisdiction over the appeal in the first place. Is it fair to say that we'll, we'll get into the quality of the analysis? But is it fair ah. to say this is uh, basically a sh- sweeping vindication of Spath's position? Yes, and, uh, embracing Spath's position, not just Spath's position, but the government's position. Because mm-hmm. Spath actually said he was on, you know, on some of the questions, he didn't say I'm 100 percent right. convinced I'm right. Okay, right. But this is this is basically we read the government's brief and we agree. Well, that, I mean, that's one way to put it. Yes, it sounds a little pejorative as if they didn't actually consider it independently. Now, I can see from the look in your eyes, you don't agree with their analysis. So tell me about where, where you think they got it wrong. So, okay, the, the, let's, let's just, let's, I don't want to go point by point. Sure, yeah, is, no, just, right. just the big stuff. So listen, this all starts and ends with the underlying 
intrusion question, right? So the microphone, the microphone. So put aside everything else and let's just talk about the microphone. Okay. Um, the question, the, the, the CMCR frames it as the burden was on Al Nashiri's lawyers, who, by the way, were not allowed to conduct a subsequent investigation, were not allowed to talk to their client, to prove that the microphone was evidence of government intrusion when the government was insisting that it was not, right? And I guess I just, I don't know how you prove that when your hands are tied behind your back, right? So separate, it's not, to me, there are two problems here. One, putting the burden on the lawyers and not allowing them to investigate, right? Seems a bit of a sort of, you know, heads we win, tails we lose. Two, I don't think the question is whether the government was actually intruding. I think the question is whether a lawyer in that position could reasonably believe that they, that they should fear for the integrity and confidentiality of the attorney-client relationship. So what, let's assume that that's right. Yeah. What then happens? What's, what's, if the court embraces yeah. that perspective, then what happens? Just we can't go forward. The case no, just no, no, stops, no, no, no. That, so, so let's listen. Let's let's rewind. Remember a while back there was a a, a, a snafu in Doe versus Mattis where the government yeah. accidentally discovered that they had monitored a phone yeah. call, right? Right, right, right? Remember what happened there, right? The government said, "Here's every, here's yeah, yeah. all of our stuff, sure. right? We're going to sit down with the lawyers. We're going to show them everything." Right. And in the, in the ACLU said, "Okay, that all looks We're good. Satisfied. Thanks, yeah, that was proper, and let's move on." Right. So what happened here was the government said, "Oh." Um, that microphone wasn't connected to anything. Trust us. You want more investigation? No. But you want to tell your client? No. But if it is the case that the microphone was, in fact, not connected to yeah. anything, then what, what is the equivalent of what the government did in Dovey Mattis that they should have done here? Just, I would say, allow the attorney, right, allow Nashiri's security-cleared defense lawyers uh -huh. um, access to whatever files would help them establish to their satisfaction. But well, I guess what I'm saying is, but if yeah. this was indeed just some legacy program, yeah. a, a microphone, there may be no files. There may be no there there. It's as you say, it's sort of a so how about, the negative. So, so how about the memo how about the memo memorializing when the recordings were discontinued? Right? Like how about some, You're assuming there is a memo. I'm assuming that somewhere someone wrote down the order to stop recording. Yes. Maybe. I'm assuming, well, maybe. Yeah. How about let's like you know, yeah. I No, look, I'm totally in agreement that there should be some reasonable amount of discovery. It's it's a fair it's a question that was fairly put into play by the existence of the microphone in some reasonable amount of discovery that probably I would think would be more testimonial nature. You'd want to have some officer should sure. be able to say, Yeah, here's the deal with that. That was used I, I up to this up. point. Like, you know, and, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Smith was supposed to disc you're not supposed to, to disconnect go around the microphone, these, but after right. Right, and, and, and he failed yeah. to do so and that yeah. and you know, our bad but no, no, nothing nefarious. Yeah, the, no, I agree with that. And, and the problem is, as I think so often happens with the military commissions, Bobby, it could be that there was nothing nefarious happening, that it was just right. a good faith accident. But the reaction to it, especially in contrast to how the government reacted to no, right. the accidental recording in Doe versus Mattis, isn't comforting. And we're talking about, and it's worth emphasizing, we're talking about different institutional actors in those two cases. Mm -hmm. Dovey Mattis, this is this is uh, Justice Department lawyers making yep. that decision, yep. right? Yep. Um, all right. So, uh, so well, I think that's totally fair, well, that, here, that here, kernel and, of the original issue. And I think the other problem here is it's not just DOD, right? That part of what's going on here is CIA. Right. And that part of why the government is insisting on such secrecy and not allowing the lawyers to investigate. Right. It's camel's nose under the tent. Exactly like, let's so. see. Well, as long as we're asking you this, I have some further follow-up questions. I have some further follow-up questions. And suddenly you're getting into stuff that they do really care about and don't want to talk about. Okay. So then, right, then the court basically – so we, we talked before about how the civilian defense lawyers had gone to Ellen Yaroshevsky and ethics professor 
professor at Hofstra Law School. Um, and the court, while misspelling her name a couple times, um, basically discredits her ethics advice um, on the ground that she didn't that she only had access to a condensed and unclassified summary of some of the relevant facts. That if she had been if she had access to everything, she would have known. And my my reaction is. The lawyers themselves didn't have access to everything. Like they're they're making their own determination about how to comply with their ethical obligations to their client based upon much the same record that they were providing to Professor Yaroshevsky. It would seem to follow, if I'm tracking this right, that if one agrees that either the burden was improperly allocated in the first instance yeah. or in any event that some further showing in terms of discovery should have been permitted, that is, the burden could be on the defense, but then there should be some reasonable opportunity to to talk to some witnesses who are here, relevant. Here. The government should have to identify them. At the very least. Once, if, you, if you accept that, and I'm actually persuaded by you that, that that is, in fact, how it should have unfolded. In no small part because, like, why not? That's a very sensible way to resolve the core dispute. And look at all the stuff that then happens by not doing it that way. But once you've decided that that was done wrong in the first instance, then everything else is tainted by that at the subsequent stages of who, who you relied upon, what kind of opinions were rendered. Is that is that right? Like, yes. It doesn't really matter that the government's going to be wrong in your analysis on all those further steps, I think and, and so the court as well. I think, or, or how about this? The rest of it infects the, like, you know, the government may still be right, but the problem is, is that the sort of, the possibility that they're wrong infects so much of what yeah. follows, right? So, so layer number one is the underlying, was there intrusion, yeah. right? On top of that, right, was it reasonable for Nishiri's lawyers to act the way they did based upon what they knew? And I think the problem is that it's impossible to answer that question, um, right? Right, without having some sense of like you know what they were prohibited from finding out. So you know what this is? This isn't a ten-layer dip. It's Jenga. Jenga. It's Jenga, and you're saying that this Jenga tower is at that stage where there's one piece at the bottom that's structurally uh, key for the rest of it. If you pull that piece about the allocation of the burden and or access to relevant witnesses at the time, you pull that out, the rest of the tower collapses. Mm -hmm. But they didn't pull it out. Instead, they affirmed that that piece was properly in there, rightly or wrongly. That's what they decided. Once you make that decision, it kind of flips around, and the rest of the tower is stabilized that's by right, that. That's right. All right. So, so, so the heart of the matter, right, is the CMCR agreeing with the government that there was no evidence of intrusion. Okay. And once they make that claim, which I think is deeply contestable. For the procedural reasons we just... Exactly thought. so, right? Whether or not it's actually true on the merits, right? I think yeah. it's a procedurally contestable yeah, claim. Yeah, that's wrong with you, because I, I think you and I have different instincts about whether what's true on the merits, but we don't know. Um, but but I think we agree on what the process should have been, and we think they got it wrong here. So the so the thing is, so that's, that's the sort of heart of the matter. Now, the CMCR then uses that and, and exercises pendant jurisdiction to reach mm -hmm. the rest of the dip, yep. right? So this is, I think, an interesting point where first the court says we have direct jurisdiction over the abatement order mm -hmm. um, because the abatement order was effectively terminating proceedings for purposes of 950D. Right. Um, we've talked before. I don't think that is a self-evident reading of the statute, but I don't think it's a preposterous yeah, and, one. And I'd expressed earlier that yeah. I thought it was actually the best reading of it. It's close enough. So that so they at least have jurisdiction in the first instance on abatement issues. Right. And then, like, you know, this is straight out of Fed courts and CF Pro. You've got your core jurisdiction, your, your initial reason to have the case, and then you hang other things on that. So here's the thing. I actually think all things being equal, that the CMCR's pendant jurisdiction analysis, where they say, here's why we can reach the rest of the yeah. dip. I actually think it's correct. Yeah. It is deeply inconsistent 
with how the CMCR has previously approached jurisdictional questions. So when they didn't want to find it, they claimed that they didn't just not find it. They over went out of their way again. to deny that over they had that kind Over and over again, the CMCR has adopted a narrow interpretation of its jurisdiction on appeal from the military commissions. And, and here so they reach for... What a coincidence. Yeah. I mean, I actually think they're right here and they were wrong there. But man, is it hypocritical. Okay. So uh, these other issues that they reached, um, I know one of them we already foreshadowed a little bit. Yes. The uh, the practicability question on right. learned counsel. So well, I want to get to that last. I okay, actually think, we'll save that I, I actually think that's the sort of weird icing on the cake piece of this. Um, so the the fight that you and I have had before is who was right as between Spath and Baker, right, about whether yeah. – about who gets to discharge the counsel. Yeah. And basically the heart of the matter here is the CMCR says Spath was right. All right. Um, well. I, I think I, – I, I disagree, but I, I don't think that that's the, the craziest part of this, of, this, of this opinion. I actually think that analysis is plausible. Um, then there's the question, right, about what happens, right, as a result. Um, and so the, the CMCR says a couple of different things. First, they say um, these guys actually have an obligation to participate and they have an obligation to comply with the orders of the military judge. And so they're basically taking a shot at all of the civilian lawyers right. for leaving. Um, well, okay, I don't think that answers the question, right? A civilian lawyer who reasonably and honestly believes that their ethical obligations pro- prohibit them from continuing to conduct their representation, what are they supposed to do? The well, they're supposed, to, they're supposed to appeal the, the judge. The, the judge decides right. it, and when the judge disagrees with them, they're supposed to appeal that. And is the CMCR going to say we have jurisdiction over that issue and it's appealed? Because my, my hunch is the answer is going to be no. Right, because that's how the CMCR has rolled. I know. And now it looks like now they've got a broader understanding. I mean, but this is this is the trap. And if the CMCR says no, then they should take it to the DC Circuit. Well, we'll we'll get back to the DC Circuit. Yeah. Um, Okay. And then there's the last piece of this, which is: Can capital litigation proceed without learned counsel? Now, the irony here is that at least part of this is moot. Because since all of this went down, um, an additional learned counsel, your friend and mine, my co-counsel, now Captain Brian Miser uh, of the Navy, has been re-sort of shanghaied back onto Nishiri's case. Okay. So this actually is not a question that is ripe right now. But, but the they reached the, it anyway. The CMCR reaches it anyway, which is part of why I think Judge... Um, who dissented? Uh, Judge Paul was it? Judge Paul dissented. Anyway, as part of there's part, a dissent for reaching an unnecessary issue and 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 over sort of exercise of pendant jurisdiction over all these things that we might not have yeah, jurisdiction yeah, over. Yeah. Um, so the sort of the short version is um, the court says there's no absolute right to learned counsel in these cases. Um, it's only when practicable. Which so this is interesting to me. So that's the language in the statute. They yeah. didn't make that up. That they're no, quoting no, they the statute. The rules of military commissions actually were written in a broader way that don't include that little caveat. And they basically said, look, the rules have no power to expand this right. Mm-hmm. The, to the extent the rules are read to mean something more than just when it's practicable, the rules were ultra vires, and therefore it goes back to the statute. But to me, that just kind of squares up the question. Does the Constitution require, as a matter of effective assistance of counsel, uh, the presence of a learned counsel when it's a capital case? So I read the CMCR as implicitly saying no. So on page 34 of the opinion, we conclude that Alan Nishiri's right to learned counsel is defined by 10 U.S.C. 949 AB2C2 and is only permitted to the greatest extent practicable. Right. So I read that as implicitly rejecting that the right to learn a counsel has any other foundation. Does the CMCR concede that there is a constitutional nope. angle to this? No. Nope. Does it talk about the relevance of the Constitution? Hence why I think it's implicit. But here's the problem, right? So now someone's going to come along and make the constitutional argument. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that'd think, be my next move. And I think it's oh, a, of course, it's, it's not. It's no longer right. So. And it's, well, or it's moot. 
it's moot for the moment. But like, and it's, and it's a potentially great, I mean, we're talking about a capital military commission. So just like the subject matter jurisdiction issue we fought about before, why would you want that to be something that doesn't get resolved until a post-conviction appeal? I feel that way about basically everything going on here. We need to get it all resolved now. Um, which of these, if any, would you take to the D.C. Circuit if you were the defense? Well, so first I would take the SPATH disqualification issue because that lingers over all of this, right? Because this, the, the, the rulings the CMCR is basically right. affirming in this appeal you are themselves— You set the clock all the way back pre-dip. Right, the, the sort of the bowl, right? SPATH is the bowl in which the dip was made. Oh, that's good. You could leave the bowl. It's like stepping outside of yourself. It's like Jenga, right? Pulling the, pulling the bottom pieces it's out. It's just like we're not playing with that tower anymore. We're going to play with this set over here. It's like four-dimensional Jenga. I think we've abused this. We really have. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, listen, it, the CMCR's ruling becomes vulnerable if SPAS's underlying rulings that they're affirming are vulnerable. So I think the first thing that's going to go to the D.C. Circuit, and it's already there, um, is a mandamus petition on the question of whether SPAS should have been disqualified based upon his ethical conflict. Um, following that, I mean, listen, I, I think a lot of what the CMCR said here was actually not strictly necessary, right? So like the Learning yeah. Council stuff, I think, is dicta. Um, although they say it's not, they're like, you know, we're saying this because we, you know, this is a whole thing. Um, no, there's no, even no. language at the end. I want to find this language because it's really funny. Um, da, 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 da. um, the military judge's abatement order is vacated. Al-Nashiri's defense counsel remain counsel of record. They have a legal and ethical obligation to continue their position at Al-Nashiri. Um, it's not the CMCR's job to tell the lawyers what the their ethical, ethical obligation is. is. It's their yeah. state bar yeah. that decides what their ethical obligation is. Just saying. Yeah. Um, Al-Nashiri's trial is to resume forthwith. Uh, we retain jurisdiction over the issue of Al-Nashiri's representation. So, like, there's all this stuff in here um, that's like, you know, we're deciding all of this. Well, and, and in general, I'm happy given the pace. I'm, I'm very wanted. happy to see these things wrestled with. And if they get it wrong, that's what the D.C. Circuit's for. In fact, it'd be great if we could have just gone straight well, to the D.C. Circuit. Exactly. Which, so, so you asked, like, which of these issues should go to the D.C. Circuit, right? So I actually think there's a pretty powerful argument that the CMCR, that the trial judge and CMCR's failure to allow Nashiri's counsel to conduct a reasonable investigation into the existence of grounds for believing yeah. that they could no longer represent their client um, is an appealable issue. And that's the base piece of the Jenga Tower, and, and that's where you and I agreed that there's a, there's a process concern there. Right. The problem, of course, is that we come back to that old chestnut, the high bar that is the D.C. Circuit's mandamus jurisprudence, where to show relief, you have to show basically that the lower courts violated something akin to clearly established law. Yeah. And I guess I just, you know, I don't know. I mean, we're in such, you know, uncharted territory here that I don't know that that's going to be an easy showing to make. That's why I actually think the bigger first question is going to be the the cleaner um, spath ethical conflict problem. Interesting. Raised in the sort of just, so the, the, the Nashiri's lawyers have already filed a mandamus petition on that ruling. Um, and the D.C. Circuit actually, late on Friday, after all this had gone down, drops an order ordering the government to respond. To yeah, that's petition. a serious issue. Um, and, well, and so, it does but have again, the... But back to our procedural substitute point. Not only is it a serious issue, it is a serious issue where the, you, could, you could have procedural objections even if you don't find it substantively availing. Exactly. Because Nashiri never had a chance to develop a record in the trial court because the proceedings were abated. And the CMCR said, oh, well, sucks to be you. Yeah. yeah that, that, that has always seemed to me, of all these issues, the one that seems most clearly wrong. Well, and, and so all the DC Circuit would have to say is, right, that, you know, without getting into whether there actually was a conflict. Yeah. Right. Especially now that the trial has been unabated, Nashiri is entitled to an opportunity to develop a record on this. Oh, what a mess. But meanwhile, <laughs> the military commission soldier on. Soldier on. 
Uh, well, so, speaking so, of moving on, but so 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 we're gonna have we already had two published opinions from the DC Circuit and Al Nashiri. I think we've had two unpublished opinions. So I think we're up to Al Nashiri five. It'll always be with us. And then we'll have like Alan Sherry 17. And Alan Sherry, it's like, you might might remember early in the Guantanamo, the post Medellin cases, right? There were three DC Circuit decisions called Kiemba. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kiemba 1, 2, and 3. Oh, it's the worst. And it was hard to keep track of which one was which. Nashiri, we're going to have like Nashiri 17 by the time we're done. Well, like Doe v. Mattis, these cases will just continue to be with us from episode to episode. But Nashiri's generating case law. Dover yeah, not, not so much. It's generating uh, delays, and I'm sure next week we'll be back with the eighth consecutive <laughs> oh, delay. Um, well, these days are going to settle. Uh, by the way, that that reminds me to update everybody. We're closing in on that hundredth episode, Woo-hoo. Steve. We're closing in on a plan of action. We are closing on a plan uh, of so action. So we're not going to say we, we're close to pinning down where it's going to be. We've compared our schedules. This is almost certainly going to be a lunchtime affair on on is it Wednesday, Wednesday November fourteenth. Wednesday, November fourteenth, probably around twelve thirty to one thirty ish. I guess we know that these things take never, an hour. They never, take, they never just take yeah. an hour. Uh, so kind of twelve thirty to two o'clock will be the target, and uh, we will announce the location very soon. And um, Maybe that's also a good time to pause and note the T-shirt sales continue. Um, I did not look this time uh, before getting on the show, but I do know that we're over $2,500 raised for ALS Texas. That's awesome. I'm so proud of everybody for doing that. I'm, I'm very excited about it. And uh, as the end of the, the month draws near, the window for ordering the T-shirts and for helping either Burnt Orange or Pepper Gray to take the title as most popular T-shirt, uh, that draws near. Uh, we definitely have hit the mark where they will indeed do the, the print run and, and take everybody's money and do the print run. So those T-shirts will be going out not too long from now, and I can't wait to get mine. Good holiday gift. They will. And you know what? Since since there has been a lot of demand, Steve, I think we will create something that will be available pre-holidays for, you know, we need a holiday shirt of some kind. Cat pajama party. Oh, that's that, that's that's complicated because then we have to have People. that whole, you know, which holiday? Well, no, like a bunch of shirts. We'll have yeah. a bunch of different kinds. Uh, well, we'll have the, the blue version and the green and red version. We can, Yeah, we'll have a, a blue and white, a green and red. We'll have other ones. We'll have a Festivus one maybe. We'll, uh, Festivus for the rest of us. So it's sort of a just on vacation for, for others. Uh this, May- seems, this seems very complicated. Maybe, maybe we stay. Maybe we stay away from. Uh, say, let's, let's stick at our lane. All right, stay all right, in our lane. So, speaking of our lane, so we promised some some <laughs> class A frivolity at the you end hear that, of our. You hear all those clicks as people hit stop. On, eh, yeah. You know, whatever works. But I mean, um, I mean, Karen does that about forty five seconds in, so it's all good. Can you blame her? No, no, no. Um, all right, but if you stayed this far, it must be because you, like us, have an interest in talking about Tom Clancy books and movies. So and first, Jack you, Ryan you gotta actors. start by telling your story. Oh, okay, so yeah, so there's a connection right, we're, here. We're, we're in the middle of, of of law professor faculty recruitment season. That's uh, right. Last weekend was the the WLS faculty recruitment conference, known unfortunately but universally as the meat market. And in what you should imagine is sort of an on campus interviews type feel, where you knock on the door. There's a hiring when you're not committee. On campus, you're all in the same the same two towers of the old Marriott Wardman Park. And and it's just so awkward as it's so awkward, awkward as can be. Uh, so I gave a talk uh, years ago. And the, and the best part is, and, and the, the interviewers are wearing green badges and the interviewees are wearing white badges. So when you see them in the elevator in the hall, you know, you know, which is the... The haves and the have-nots. Or, or which is the commodity and which is the buyer. There you go. So uh, I'd, I'd done this interview um, and it seemed to be going well. I was trying to portray myself as a person who would work at... The intersection of law and national security. Imagine huh? that. This, what? Now, this is pre-9-11. There wasn't much market for this at the time, but it's what I wanted to do. And I'd given this whole spiel about, you know, 
I think it was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and all this national security what? stuff. I know, right? And had, had people never heard of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court? Uh, a lot of the people I spoke with had not heard of it. Of course not. Uh, but, but many had. In fact, let me digress and tell you that when I gave my talk at Wake Forest, which ultimately hired me, I gave this whole big thing about the Trung case. Yeah. And uh, David Logan, God love David Logan. He's One the of the best. very few law professors who's taller than I am. Oh, my God. He's super tall. David Logan. Six foot ten, by the he way. He walks me out and he says, I didn't ask you any questions in this, but I should tell you. I was a Fourth Circuit clerk, and I worked on that case. And then he proceeded to clarify a few things for me I'd gotten wrong. And I loved him for not actually embarrassing me in front of my future colleagues there. But back at the meat market, I gave my whole spiel. This guy walks me out. I thought it had gone so well. And he kind of puts his arm around me and says, son. <laughs> and I knew I was in trouble because that's just like the, the that's like an, an older person's way of letting me down, right? The son, uh, that's a bunch of Tom Clancy stuff. And what you need to do is focus on something that, you know, we might actually hire you for, like, uh, you know, business law, that sort of thing. A bunch of Tom Clancy stuff, Steve. You know, what do you think? It worked out pretty well for you. It worked out all right. Yeah. It turned out the Tom Clancy stuff was okay. I mean, so, when I, so when I did my, um, I, was, I was a couple of years behind you, you know, six months or so. Yeah, not too um, far. And, and when I, I remember when I, just to time when I was doing my, my first, my interviews, I got a question when I was an entry level professor about what I would write about, quote, when John Kerry wins, unquote. <laughs> it's like October 2004. Yep, no, well. So somehow Don't national bet security against law. national security I was law. Say, seriously. It's done right by us. All right, so Tom Clancy. So, so yeah. you and I, I think, both came of age in a time when, you know, the techno thriller was actually a very popular genre, whether it was Tom Clancy or Dale Brown, right, or mm. other sort of, you know, folks writing about basically. Interesting, plausible, sometimes quasi-apocalyptic, right, future military crises. What, what was great about Tom Clancy early on, that was mainly this is mainly Hunt for Red October, was at least for the naval stuff and the submarine tech, his his level of effort in understanding where the technology was right. and, and the his, analytical sophistication of his of his of the narrative and building that into the plot in a meaningful yep. way. That was I, I think it's actually mainly just true about Hunt for Red October, but it I'm made it sure accessible. It was, I mean, like so you know it, it it allowed you to understand like what the difference was between say like an Alpha class submarine with its titanium hull. And, you know, a sort of typhoon with its double hull, but like steel and twin screws. All right. So let's talk first uh, books. And then we'll talk about how the movies may be different or better. But for you, what are the top books? The top Tom Clancy So here's books. the problem. You haven't, Where does read it, all, you haven't read all of them. Right. But well, because I don't think I, I got to a certain point. I'm like, well, this isn't the same thing anymore. I don't like this anymore. So here's the problem. So, so I think that as a, I actually think the best book, and I actually think you might agree with me on this, is The Standalone. It's Red Storm Rising. Um, I loved Red Storm because Rising. Red Storm Rising is not part of the the plot arc, right? Red Storm Rising is the standalone, you know, 1985, 86. Um, yeah, it's a Cold War. It's a conventional war toward toward how the U.S. and Russia could actually, you know, backslide into World War Three. Yeah, right. Um, and it's deeply plausible and it's interesting and. The tactics and the strategy are actually really fascinating. It's just fascinating. really well done on a, on a very broad canvas. Yes. It's really hard to do a, a story about the full theater of conflict. And I think he does an okay job there. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, um, listen, I, I'm, I'm biased. I actually think the novel, the original book for Hunt for October, is just so good. Yeah. And it's so much yeah. more interesting than the movie. Well, you can get so much more detail in yeah. there. Yeah. I, I love, I think, like a lot of things, this is sort of like talking about John Grisham books, right? Yeah. I don't know. What's his best book? Is <laughs> Well, is it All Time to Kill or is it The Firm? It sure isn't whatever the most recent one was. I mean, like Clear and Present Danger, I think there's a, a – um, uh, Patriot Games, right, goes much further into the complexities of, 
you know, UK-Irish relations. Clear at Present Danger goes much deeper into the complications of the drug war. Like, the, the books are just so many layers deeper than the movies. But as you point out, eventually it begins to become more of a, a continuing story arc about Jack Ryan. Yes. Uh, which early on is a lot of fun, but eventually... It gets a little tired. Uh, well, eventually just, you know, the plausibility and all the rest... It, it, it jumps the shark, in my opinion, at a certain point. Where do you think it jumps the shark? So I think, it, you know, it's interesting. I think it jumps the shark not perhaps later than you do, right? So so in Dead of Honor, right, um, Dead of Honor, he comes back as national security advisor. There's a trade war between the U.S. and Japan that turns into something of a hot war. Um, I won't spoil The ending is rather, well, I guess I am going to have to spoil the ending because at the end he becomes president um, yeah. Yeah. through a somewhat, well, Pre-9-11, a, a completely unfathomable series of events. After 9-11, maybe a little yeah, more know, fathomable. Right. So to, to me, like, at that point, it's like, oh, our hero, he's now the president. Because it, it's very, because plot. You know, right, because like, plot. That will um, help. I, I think the books after that, so Executive Orders, um, The Bear and the Dragon, The Red Rabbit, like, I think I think those books maybe start. Yeah, yeah and eventually you start to realize, like, wait a minute, it says Tom Clancy at the top of this, but at the bottom wait, it says, as written by so, Steve so, Laddick. So, somewhere along the way, they, 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 they switched oh on Oh, my us. God, why don't we do this with our Articles by Stephen Ivlotic, <laughs> brought to you by Bobby Chesney. Like, wait a minute, that's crap. <laughs> Chesney guy actually wrote this. All right, so so you know, I I would still put the original. I I put the book version of Hunt for October above. I think almost all the other books, just because it was just so thorough and well done. Okay, so so pivoting over you, to the movie, you lost another stuff. So this is also like, so, so, but this is the thing oh. about this. So the movie, there are a couple of jokes in the movie, right? Um, Andre, you lost another, another submarine. submarine. So in the book, they actually did, in fact, lose another submarine, <laughs> right? There's an additional right. whole submarine that gets lost in the book. The, on the cutting room floor. The E.S. Politofsky. Now, now the movie for Hunt for October obviously is pretty wonderful. Yeah. Uh, which of the other movies do you think worked pretty well? So, um, can I say none of them? Okay, well, okay not... Uh, so Clear and Present Danger, I think, you know, becomes just this whole, like, you know, how many how many action takes can we make, you know, Harrison Ford do, right? Like It does, it, it wears I know, thin. You, you, there are a couple of scenes that you really like. Okay, can I say this? Yeah. That, um, I think you can love a movie because of its collective quality, and you can also love a movie because there's some scenes that you just really enjoy. And Clear and Present Danger has two scenes in an otherwise somewhat forgettable movie that kind of goes on a little bit long and seems a little bit forced. And William Defoe's character, I... I could really do without William Defoe in that role, but two things, especially because like Clark is actually such an important, like you know, the, the the character he's played is so important and transformative in other of the books. Yeah, and and so when uh, when the Suburbans get caught in the ambush and they have to ram back and forth, that whole scene, both the the pathos of of, of the his friends in the book, you know, the characters better. Um, not everyone surviving that, but also just the visuals. Um, that's a great scene, in my opinion. Really fun action scene, and then a, a good movie making scene. The intercut scene yeah. with the funeral, yeah. with the despicable president looking on, all honor, but you know the truth. How he's at that moment, he's saluting the flag. There's the flag draped casket, but actually he's at that moment allowing American soldiers to die downrange, and right. you sort of see it bouncing back and forth while t- I think Taps is playing. Yep. Yep. That's it. It's a little, you know, is it ham handed? Sure, but is is it powerful? You bet. It's effective. So I, I think Patriot Games is probably the best of the movies after Humphrey October. Um, you know, it's I, Harrison Ford's best as Jack Ryan. 
Yeah. Um, there are only two, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and in, this is the one where he's not wearing like a windbreaker trying to look tough. That's true. Um, so, you know, some of all fears, I think, had a lot of potential. And they just sort of made... They, they, is it, they, is it Ben Affleck's fault? No, I think I think they I think they should have made it longer. I think they should have just eaten eaten the sort of hit they would take um, from being criticized for being too long and had more of the plot complexity in the movie. Yeah, because yeah. the book is actually quite complex and intricate in the plot. The other problem is, of course, some of all fears they made a huge you know post nine eleven shift away from who the bad guys are in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To that's... the sort of the neo Nazi. You know, yeah, that was that was weak. Um, I agree that that was not that was definitely not my favorite. I think Patriot Games works really well. Yeah. It was well cast all around, and yeah. it, it's it's also a plot that lends itself to movie treatment. Yep, yep. Where there's like a the the good versus evil showdown at the end, and Sean, yeah, yeah, look, it's, what, it's, Sean Bean as a. I mean, you can't beat that. Of course, of course, he's the bad guy. And uh, what what do you want Wait, more? Ned than Stark it? is the bad guy. It, oh, plot twist! Plot twist. Um, it's dark. The house. Your your family's in danger. I will say the book actually ratchets up the tension. As they come to realize that these these you know Splinter Group IRA guys yeah. had come to the United States, what's the thing? The, 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 the tension's much higher in the, the book. The other thing is in the book, right? The Brits are the prince and princess of Wales, right? Whereas in the movie, it's like the fourth Lord of Umberton. Do you think that was sort of a? <laughs> he was called to the banners of the Starks. Um, why do you think they made that switch? Is that like a sensitivity, like yes. just portraying? Yes, like, you that's... couldn't have a you couldn't have a big a mass market U.S. movie where the prince and princess of Wales are kidnapped. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't see why it should be that sensitive. But I, I mean, listen. In the, it's quite clear in the book. It is yeah. the Prince and Princess of Wales, yeah. and in the movie, it's like you know the Secretary of State for Ireland or something. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I'm kind of inspired to go back and watch some of these. All right, but wait, we got one last thing to do before we get out of here. We haven't named all the Ben Affleck. So there, no, no, there are five actors, right, who have played. Sorry, the, Jack, oh, the Jack Ryan. Ryan's. I said Ben Affleck. You said Ben Affleck. Yeah. So you gave one away. Yeah. yeah. Well, right? we already named him. So, so Ben Affleck. Right. Alec Baldwin. As the, the so I, I I'm kind of partial to the Alec Baldwin. Well, young, Jack Ryan. young Alec Baldwin. It's very when you watch him, you're like, oh, is that one of the younger brothers? Like, no, no, that's what that's Alec Baldwin. Baldwin. That's like young. one of his early. Stars. I actually think that was one of his best roles. Yeah, he he, he yeah. played the role of the analyst. You know, most sort of he, moviegoers, the... moviegoers don't perceive this distinction between an analyst versus a case officer. Right. Um, you know, he's like, I'm not a case officer. I should. I think he actually says that. Right. That's right. I like, just write. He, I just write books. Books. What he, books? He's an analyst. He shouldn't be in these roles, and he comes off. Right. Jack, next time you get a bright idea, write a damn memo. Yeah, yep, that was good. Um, later on, he, have, you know, and Harrison Ford kind of has that simply by by virtue of being an older, gawkier figure. Um, he's good. He's Harrison Ford. It's just yeah. it's just Harrison Ford as yeah. this person. Uh, the worst. So I have not watched yet. The new Jack Ryan series on Amazon Prime. Um, John Krasinski. With John Krasinski. Um, you know, I, it's an interesting. I, I think there are two tiers of of cinematic Jack Ryan's. I think there's the Alec Baldwin Harrison Ford tier, okay. and I think there's the Ben Affleck Chris Pine John Krasinski tier. Ooh, yeah, because there was what was that one called Shadow Recruit? Shadow Recruit with yeah. Kevin Costner, right? Um, yeah, no. So, <laughs> what's the opposite of saying you had me at you, you lost me at? Uh, I mean, of course, Chris Pine means we'd have to talk also about you know James Kirk. Oh, yeah, you know, are they going to do any more of the Star Trek? I, I think there's at least one more, right? Yeah. I don't know. All right, I think we've we've worn this into the ground. True, and we're actually just over an hour, so we haven't totally blown up our spot. It's tempting to go on, but i got a call to take, so let's wrap it up. You have a up. call? You yeah. work for a living? I have other jobs. All right, well, listen, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, go find your favorite Jack Ryan and... 
give him a secret spy mission. Send us some good uh, Jack Ryan uh, gifs or gifs if you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole thing. Or do um, you have a strong view on that? Gifs versus gifs? I think I think it's gifs. I just don't know. But um, uh, the 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 um, in Hamilton, right? There's a line where. Um, uh, we rendezvous with 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 uh, Rochambeau. with Rochambeau. Consolidate our consolidate our gifts. And, <laughs> and it's funny, like uh, you know, the first time I heard the soundtrack, consolidate like, our gifts. Consolidate our gifts. That's pretty good. You know, just to throw where I was. That's excellent. That that could be an episode title. Consolidate our gifts. What was our other one earlier? Uh, not everybody be DPHing. Hmm. All right, we'll, we'll have to debate. We'll go debate this offline. All right. All right. Stay safe out there. Adios.